The title of our message today is The Wrath of God Completed, taken from the first verse of our text. Look at the end of verse 1 in Revelation chapter 15. It says, Then I saw another sign, great and marvelous, seven angels having, um, am I in the right? Yeah, having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. These are the seven last plagues that contain the entire wrath of God. In them. Now, the them here is the seven bowl judgments. And all of them are judgments. All of them are plagues that are poured out upon mankind. Not all of the trumpets were judgments. The majority were. Not all of the seals were judgments. The majority were. But however, these seven bowls are judgments. And they are like a bowl that you pour out or that God pours out onto this earth that holds his wrath. These are the last judgments of the book of Revelation and they are very intense. And we find in chapter 15 a preamble. It's not, it doesn't give us any of the judgments in this chapter, but it just lays out the framework for their beginning. We could call it an introduction. And I got to say that most people who teach Revelation teach 15 and 16 together or chapter 15 and then part of 16 as they start talking about the plagues or the bull judgments. But we're not going to do that. We're going to take time to, to slow down enough to take these eight verses and to see what God has to say as he starts talking about his wrath that comes from heaven. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven. We've been seeing signs in heaven as we've made our way through the book of Revelation. We saw a sign in heaven of a woman clothed in the sun with the 12 stars around her head, which was about to give birth, and she gave birth to a child who was caught up to God and who rules and reigns. And then we saw another sign in heaven, a great fiery dragon. Then we went to the earth and we saw the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. This is the Antichrist and the false prophet. So now it says, I saw another sign. So there's another sign given up in heaven. And it says, great and marvelous. The word marvelous here means, means wonderful in the sense of overwhelming. It's, this, is, this sign is great and it is huge. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is completed. Now the final generation takes the completion of the wrath of God. They're not, they not only represent all the evil of all time, and I think they do, but this generation themselves is particularly evil because the world is getting worse and worse. The world is growing worse and worse. There is a eschatology. Eschatology simply means the study of the last days. There is a form of eschatology that teaches that this world is going to get better and better. It's called post-millennialism. That we Christians are going to Christianize the world and then Jesus is going to come back and we're going to hand him over a Christianized world. And the world's going to get better and better and better until we have a Christian world and hand it over to him. I, I got to say, I wouldn't hate that if that's what God had for us that we were supposed to go out and Christianize the world, but that's not what we see. Do you think things are worse than they were 50 years ago? Of course, the world's gone through some pretty incredibly dark times 
There have been some things that have been really, really difficult. But listen to what Daniel 12.10 says. It says, Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But the wise will understand. So you've got the wicked going alongside with the purified. Revelation 22.11. He who is just... Let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. So there is wickedness and righteousness in the last days. And as I said, the Bible tells us that they're growing worse. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Humanity is going to become more evil as time goes along. So not only do these last group of people receive the wrath of God as a type of God pouring out his wrath on all of humanity, but also as a type of them being the most evil generation that had ever lived. Let me read you a little bit more in 2 Timothy 3. It says, For men will be lovers of themselves. Now that sounds a lot like today. Lovers of money, that sounds a lot like today. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, sounds like today at a Dodgers game. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I think that describes our world. It describes even where churches are going. Churches are teaching that we are to look within our own heart to determine how we should live and what is the right and wrong way to live. And it's been said that behind your heart is you. And the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked who can know them. If we are left to ourselves, then we will seek pleasure and be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, we want to be lovers of God, and we still struggle. We want to be right with God, and we still have difficulties. We want to be in right standing with Him. We want to say to Him tonight, Lord, we want to serve You, live for You, love You. And if there's anything in our lives that is wrong, then speak to us. God does that through his word. He does that through the Holy Spirit who convicts us. The word convict, by the way, doesn't mean condemn. It means convince. So the Holy Spirit is working within the church, the body of Christ, and convincing us that the things that we have been doing, maybe even justifying, are wrong. And then there's our own conscience, which God has given us that we would go, this just isn't right. Even when we justify sin, and remember, sin is deceptive, the devil's a deceiver, and the heart of man is, is, is deceptive. We can deceive ourselves. And so it's so easy for us to be doing something that we have justified and made it right, but our conscience will tell us that something needs to change. And, and you don't have to have it completely figured out when you make things completely right with God. Instead, you just say, Lord, I want to be doing what you want me to do. Help me to do that. I know I need help. 
We don't have what it takes to be able to please God. And so we need the spirit of God working within us. That doesn't mean someone who is secular can't do something to please God. We're talking about having the right heart made right because God called us and saved us. So they are lovers of God rather, um, rather than, they're lovers of the pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here we go. Having a form of godliness and denying its power from such people turn away. That'll be the last days. That's how the whole thing started off. This is in the last days. This is what men are going to be like. Now in verse 2 it says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those that had victory over the beast, over the image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. So this is a vision of the people who said, we're not going to take the mark of people who were believers. They had become believers during the tribulation period. We believe that the Lord's going to come back for, well, there's going to be a resurrection at the beginning of the tribulation period or before it, and that God's going to take those who are alive and remain and cause them to meet him in the air. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We are not all going to sleep. And by sleep, he means die. But some are going to be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. Now, this is called the rapture. And I've told you how many times I don't like that word, rapture. Uh, uh, being, being caught up is better, or the gathering is better. Second Thessalonians talks about the actual event and talks about us being gathered together to him. And it's the gathering together of the living and the dead. But the truth is, unless you are all millennial, you believe that there is going... The truth is, you believe there's going to be a resurrection, if you're all millennial, you're post-millennial, you believe some things differently than we believe about the resurrection, but everybody believes in a resurrection. Every Christian believes that the body is going to be resurrected. So the question is, when that resurrection happens, what's going to happen to the people who are alive when it takes place? When you have the resurrection of, of the, as the Bible says, the, you have the resurrection of the, the, the dead, and then the living are caught up, and he comes and judges the living and the dead, the Bible says, which means there are still some living when it comes to the very end. It, and it still drives me crazy that people say, well, I don't believe in a rapture. I don't think there is a rapture. I don't believe in a rapture. I don't believe in the rapture. It's like, if you're going to tell me that, and this is a challenge, you know, if, you're, if, if you believe that and you're going to go right on our, on our, um, our YouTube comments, oh, there's no rapture, they just tell me what you believe. Tell me how you think that's all going to come to pass. Just give me a short one paragraph explanation of why you believe that there is no such thing as this event. Now, I'm with you on the name, all right? But just because the name isn't a good name to describe the event doesn't mean the event isn't true. By the way, it was taught all the way back in early church history. It is a, it is a Christian myth that it is new, that the concept of being rescued from the time of trouble that's coming upon the earth was, was taught all the way back in the early church. They say, well, the majority of the church didn't teach it during the, the dark ages. We don't believe half, we don't believe 99% of what the church taught during the church ages. There needed to be a reformation. And so just because the majority of, majority of the church was amillennial, that doesn't mean that amillennialism is true. Because that's what they believed. 
We want to know what the Bible says because the church during that time believed a lot of all kinds of weird things, which is why we had a Reformation. So um, these, are, these are those that were killed during the tribulation period. I was trying to think of why I got off on the rapture there. Um, probably because it's a pet peeve right now for me. Um, but anyway, these are those who are saved out of the tribulation period. They have given their lives and they're standing on the sea of glass. Now, what is this sea of glass in heaven? We saw it earlier in the book of Revelation, Revelation 4, 6. Before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and all around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes, front and back. So there's in the middle of heaven, there's a sea of glass like a crystal. Now, so many people get this wrong. I want to take some time to look at what it is. First of all, remember that there is a temple in heaven and that the tabernacle that Moses was, to, was, was told to build and the temple that Solomon built, that David designed, were a copy of the temple in heaven. We could say the holies of holies would be the throne room. There is a, an Ark of the Covenant that is revealed up in heaven. So in Hebrews 8, it says that we who serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. That's the, the temple he's talking about. You'll get that in a moment. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the patter, pattern shown you on the mountain. The reason he was given the detailed instructions on how to make the tabernacle, which was a tent first, and the temple would be built by, by later, is because it's a copy of what is in heaven. So the temple was a place where you met with God. And in heaven, there's a temple where you meet with God. And a temple on earth was a place that you met with God and in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, the presence of God was there. Now the presence eventually left, but it was there in the beginning. But 1 Kings 7.23 tells us about a sea that was in the outer court of the temple. So you had the holies of holies, then you had the holy place, then you had the, the court where the priests did the sacrifices, which had the altar and the golden laver or the golden sea. Then you had the court of the, the men, then the court of the women, then the court of the Gentiles. So it was all this separation going on. It says here of this sea, this is 1 Kings 7.23, and he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from the brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits and the line, 30 cubits, measured the circumference. So a cubit was the width between an elbow and a hand thought to be about 18 inches. So this would put it 16 feet across, 17 feet across. So this is a large laver. So if you think a place where the priest went and washed themselves in, don't think of something smaller. Think of something that is big, and it's called a sea because it's so big. Now the priest would wash their hands and feet in the sea of bronze. It says in Exodus 30, 18 and 20, you shall also make a laver of bronze and it, with its base of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle and the altar. The altar was the place where the animals were tied to and burnt and sacrificed to God. And you shall put water on in it. 
For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they come near the altar to minister, and to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. Now, it wasn't that God hated dirty hands and feet. This was a symbol of being right when you see God or when you make a sacrifice to God. Making a sacrifice to God means nothing if your heart isn't right. God said in the Old Testament, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So if we make a sacrifice to God or we give to God today, but we are playing a game and we're pretending, if our hands aren't clean, if our feet aren't clean, the hands, the things we do, the feet, where we go, if they are not clean, then our sacrifice doesn't mean anything. For them, they were going to die by giving an unholy sacrifice unto God. So we need to have the right heart. And this is where, again, we make things right with God, which can happen for us in a moment. You could be convicted by the Spirit today and say, Lord, I realize I might not even know all of the things in my life that have to be corrected, but I want to be right with you. I want to live the way you want me to live. That's the right heart. We're cleansing ourselves. Now, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 says this, talking about the role of the husband. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify, that's to set apart, and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word. So the Lord cleanses us with the washing of the water of the word. We're his body, we're the bride of Christ, and he gives us his word. It's one of the reasons I think we're not supposed to neglect the, the, the gathering of ourselves together. Because when we come together and, and, and center ourselves around God's word, there's something, there's a cleansing power of God's word that challenges us and encourages us and speaks to us about being right with God. And so this, this sea of glass represents the word of God, which we cleanse ourselves before God with. The, the Bible, it, it's not that the Bible is some kind of magical book by which we get cleansed, but the truths that are in the word of God applied to our lives wash us because we make ourselves right by what we read here. So we're being cleansed by God's word in our lives. And the sea in the Old Testament altar represented that for the priest and it represents that for them. They're standing on the sea of glass. They have been made righteous because they live the word. It said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. And so they said, we will not bow down to the Antichrist. And so they were cleansed by the washing of the word. Now, it says the sea of glass here is mingled with fire. Excuse me, mingled with blood, right? Uh, let me read it. Um, let's go back and read it again. Um, and I saw something like the sea of glass mingled with fire, okay? Now, look at John, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, from all of our sins. Now, the blood of Christ, there's hundreds of verses that tell us that. The blood of Christ was represented in the temple by the altar. He hung on the cross, 
but there an, was an altar where it was given, and there is an altar in heaven, talked about the souls being under the altar, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. It says that, in, that he said, Woe am I, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. When he saw God, he realized he had a problem. And an angel went and took a coal from the altar and touched his lips, and he was purified. And so this sea of glass is mingled with fire, representing the, the word of God, the cleansing of God through his word, and through the offering and sacrifice of the blood of Christ through the altar, which would be the fire that is there. That's what this represents. And they're standing on it. I think when we get to heaven, by the way, that we will stand on the glass sea. The, these people don't have their, their uh, glorified bodies yet. They were killed during the tribulation period. And there will be a, a rapture, a resurrection for them, not a rapture. There'll be a resurrection for them at the end of the tribulation period. And they'll get their bodies, but they don't have them now. So you wonder what happens to people when they die today and they're in the presence of God. Perhaps they stand on this very same glass sea with, mingled with fire that is before the throne of God. To be absent from this body, the Bible says, is to be present with the Lord. For those of us that have lost people who knew Christ, they are in the presence of God even now. Now it says that these people that had defied the Antichrist and were standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So this is, I, I, I giggle a little bit because throughout the book of Revelation, we see people having harps and singing songs. And this is almost like a picture that we have of heaven, babies with harps, you know, flying around up in heaven. Now, minus the babies, but people seem to have harps that seem to be singing a lot in heaven. And if you're a person who doesn't like to sing, I do not believe that all we're going to do in heaven is sing. I don't believe it's going to be one long worship service. Every so often you'll hear somebody say, usually a worship leader, this is what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. So you better, you better start getting at it. You better start liking it. And, and then you go, I don't, I don't want to worship forever. I don't want to sing forever, right? And we have songs that reinforce that. I can only imagine it's probably the most popular worship song that there is. Um, where I can't, when all I'll do, we say in the end of that song, when all I'll do is worship you. Now, worship is more than singing. So I'll give the songwriter that. Who is the songwriter? I can't remember his name. Um, for mercy me. But anyway, I'll give the songwriter that. That worship is more than just singing. And we will worship throughout all of eternity. We're going to worship by ruling and reigning with Christ. We're going to be worshiped by doing the things that God wants us to do. But we're not going to have one worship service, long worship service in heaven. And I think the reason we hear it that way is because we heard so many people say it. All right. Uh, but anyway, these guys have harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, again, I think people quickly get these wrong. I think we, we kind of come to this and we quickly read it. And we go, well, the song of Moses and the song of, of the Lamb, they must have collaborated to, 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 to write a song. Now, Moses was a songwriter. I don't know if you knew that about Moses. There are three songs in the Old Testament that Moses sang. Moses was a deliverer. Moses was brought up in the court of Pharaoh. He was taught in all of the sophisticated things of his day. And 
certainly that would have been music. And so he writes a song and sings it in Exodus chapter 20. He, he writes a song and says it in Deuteronomy 22. Now, why did he sing it in Exodus 20? And why does he say it in Deuteronomy 22? Because in Exodus 20, he was about 40. And in Deuteronomy, he's like 80-something. And he's like, I'm just going to say it to you guys. Remember, Deuteronomy is the second law. So Deuteronomy was written to those that survived the wilderness. And now we're going to the promised land some 38 years later. So, so he, he says it to them. But it's a different song, by the way. But he sings a song in Exodus 20. And then in Psalms 90, we find a psalm of Moses that Moses sings. And it's not the same one that we find here, by the way. Because I looked. I thought, I wonder if it's, if it's that song. But it's not. It's a different song. Now, Psalms 90, verse 12 says, this is in his, his song, so teach us the number our days that we may again, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So Moses talks about how our lives are temporary. The Bible says they're, they're a vapor. They're here one moment and they're gone the next. Teach us to number our days so we may gain a heart of wisdom. That we would go, I'm only here for a short time. Let me walk in wisdom. Let me walk with God during the time that I'm here. That's in the song of Moses in Psalms 90, verse 12. Now, this song, I think, is about the lamb. It's a song of Moses and of the lamb. Like, it's a song of the lamb because it's about the lamb. It's a song of Moses because Moses writes this song. So, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Now, the reason I don't think this can be a collaboration, and my wife talked to me about this earlier today, she actually pointed it out, that you, 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 that he's not going to sing about himself. The, Lord, the, the Lamb, he isn't going to go, are your works Lord God Almighty, and the Lamb is Lord God Almighty. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come to worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now let's break down this song. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. This is the same term that is used in the very beginning of this chapter. Great and marvelous. These are, these are, 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 are awesome works. That's the idea. So great and awesome are his works. When you think about God creating the universe, we're, we're discovering things from the latest telescope that's been sent out that they never expected. They're discovering that galaxies formed very early in the existence of the universe. Because the crazy thing about looking through telescopes, and this is the James Webb telescope, right? So the crazy thing about looking through a telescope is you're actually looking back in time. You got to get back in time. Because you're looking at something that happened a long time because that's how long it takes light to travel. So it's taking the light to travel that far. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that the earth is that old, all right, before you get all up in arms. The Bible says that God shook out the heavens like a blanket. And if everything spread out quickly, then it would have gone beyond the speed of light and time is relative, right? Einstein taught us that, and it was confirmed. 
so that time travels differently at different speeds. So it could be one time in the universe and another time in another part of the universe. Now, somebody asked me if I was close to an astrophysicist to have come up with this theory. The answer to that is no. I have no idea. And I only slightly know how a scientist would respond because I've talked to one about it a little bit. I only slightly know how it would respond. However, we are looking at light that is 13.5 billion years ago. Now, here's what it teaches us. That our Earth had a beginning. And that our Earth is not rebounding. Because uh, you're in the before the Hubble Space Telescope and before the discovery of background radiation and waves that came from an, a creation event. You can call it the Big Bang if you want to. I'll refer to it as the Big Bang, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a creation event. I'm talking about God creating the world, okay? So there were waves that were found which were so precise that proved that there was some event that brought our universe into existence. And there was a background radiation that was discovered, again, that proved that there was some, a big bang or something that brought our universe into existence. And then we learned that our universe is expanding. We learned that because of light waves. They appear red when it's going away, blue when it's coming at us. Everything is going out away from us, everything. So the universe is expanding. We also know that the universe is not going to collapse on itself. Again, I can't tell you why, because I'm nowhere near a scientist. But what I am told by scientists is that this rebound theory, that the Earth expands and collapses and expands, is just not going to happen. Because the, the universe is cooling off. The universe is like a clock winding down. It's not gaining in energy that can cause it to suck back in and pop back out again. It, the, the multiverse theory is just that. It's a theory. There's nothing that would even, even speak of some kind of multiverse theory. God created our universe, and if God created it, and it's the span of his hands, then God truly is almighty. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. God's going to do things that are just and true. He's not going to do things that are unjust. We're heading towards, and I'm feeling ill-prepared. I've got a lot more reading to do. But we are going to do a study on hell in the book of Revelation. We get to the end and they throw them in the lake of fire. And I want to talk about what has been taught about hell and what people ignore about what is taught about hell. And I think that there's some things that are deliberately ignored about it, deliberately, that are never talked about. There are certain things that are talked about. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't believe hell is eternal. I'm saying that there are some things that are not talked about and there's a certain way in which hell is presented. And I think that we end up maligning God by not being biblical in the way that we talk about hell. It seems unfair. And I want to talk about what the Bible really says and how we deal with that. And I'll just give you an example. And here, here you're going to go, oh boy. Maybe even at this point you go, oh boy, I'll find a new church right now. The Bible certainly talks about the, the fire never going out and the worm never dying. But it also talks about many are the, the way that, the broad is the road that leads to destruction and many are that find it. It talks about people perishing. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish. So is the, does the fire never go out and they suffer or are they destroyed? 
And how come no one ever brings this up? How come when someone does a teaching on hell, they don't go, here it says destruction, and here it says fire is eternal. So which one is it? And what are they talking about? Both can't be correct, but one of them has to be an allegory. One, one of them has to be an allegory. And why does the Bible say some are beaten with few stripes and some are beaten with many? And why does the Bible say it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for some than for, in the day for others? So that God's judgment is going to be fair. So there is my little blurb for up and coming study on hell, which I may retire the week after I give it. I may be forced into retirement the week after, the week after I give it, who knows? Which is why it's taken me so long and why I'm really doing as much studying as I can on it right now. All right? So hang on and wait. Um, just and true are your ways. God's ways are true and just. He's just in everything he does. He's not going to unfairly treat someone. O kings um, and saints. Um, are your ways, O kings, and, uh, O king of saints, which he's our king and we are his saints. Saints are not people that have been sainted by the church. They are people who are set apart. You are saints. And if you're in the Catholic church, you're a saint. You can go home and tell your mom, I made it before I even died. O king of saints. I love this next statement. Who shall not fear you, Lord? Th this is coming from Moses singing in heaven by these people that have been, been delivered. Who will not fear you, O Lord? Now, there are people who don't fear God. They don't fear God a bit. There are people who aren't Christians who don't fear God at all. Christians don't fear God at all. I think we should. I, I think God is so awesome and so beyond anything we could imagine that we should fear him. Now, I don't fear that he's going to torture me. That's not the fear I have of God. The, the Bible says that we have to give an account before God. That scares me. Now, I try my best to have a right standing with God. I realize there are things that God has to do in my life to get me, you know, get me straightened out, reveal and work it in. But I want to be able to stand before him and say, I really sincerely lived for you. I want to be able to say that. But it, it's, it's, it's scary that God might go, you sure did like to hear tidbits about people, didn't you, Robert? Somebody would say, I need to tell you, no, I shouldn't tell you. No, you can't do that. You got to tell me now. And, and God goes, well, you just kind of like gossip. So, so I have to give an account. Is there something in our lives that, that we have to stand before him? No one's going to stand in his presence. He is so awesome. There's not shifting a shadow in him at all. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? Says Moses, who saw the glory of God. Moses said, I want to see you. God said, you can't, but I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and then I'm going to pass by. And what he saw was the air God passed by and it was full of glory. And it's Moses who says, who shall not fear you, O Lord? Now, maybe he's thinking in the future. There's not going to be a person alive, not you, not me, not a non-believer, who's not going to fear God. Who will not fear you, O Lord? One day we'll see him as he is and we'll fear him. And glorify your name, for you alone are holy. God is the, the only one who is. None of us, and not anybody else is even close. No angel, no person. For all nations shall come and worship before you, 
for your judgments have been manifest. Every, every, eye, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The writer of Hebrews had that understanding. He is a living God and it is a fearful thing. And if you say, I don't fear him at all, then maybe there just needs to be a reevaluation. Why don't I fear him? And, and how come I should fear him? What is it about God that I'm not seeing that I should fear him? Now, after these things, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So now the temple and the, of the tabernacle of the testimony is opened up in heaven and out of the temple came seven angels having seven plagues. Now this is, this is the darkest parade that you would ever see. I don't know if these seven angels come out in individual, you know, seven different angels walking out of the temple, but each of them have a plague. I, maybe they came out two by two and then one, maybe one came out first, everybody else two by two. I don't know. But I can't help think of parades in Pride Month. And I can't help but think of the things that had gone on in the parades in this month. That are more than just debauchery, what the Bible would call debauchery, but blasphemous as well. And these seven angels walk out in their parade with the plagues that are going to be poured out upon all of mankind. And it says, clothed in pure, bright linen, which would be the, what they're doing is right, and having on their chest girded with a golden band. Now, gold is rare here on earth. In heaven, it is, the streets are gold, right? So it's the pavement of heaven. But in Revelation chapter one, Jesus has a golden sash on or a golden girded around the waist with gold. So here these angels have this golden sash as well. Not sure that we understand it completely. Clothed in pure white linen with having their chest girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave them the seven angels, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And so now the seven bowls with the wrath of God are given to seven angels with seven plagues to pour these plagues with the wrath of God down upon the earth. Now, why is God so angry? The Bible, first of all, says, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So God can be angry and not sin. It's not like it's an outburst of anger. God is angry at men that have done things that are harmful and sinful to men. I've shared before that sin is sin because it's got something inherent in it that's wrong. It's not just sin because God desired it to be sin. But slandering is sin because it's damaging to other people. Uh, murdering is wrong because you murder someone. Inherent in sin is something that is wrong. Romans 8, 1 says about the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and unright ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who surpass the truth of God in unrighteousness. So wrath, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans 2, 5 says, but in accordance with the hardness and the impudent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
So it's a hardness of a heart that causes God's wrath to be poured down upon them. It says in John chapter 3 that if you don't know him, you are under the wrath of God. So if you don't know him today, you are under God's wrath. Romans 5, 9 says much more. Now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. The tribulation period is called a time of God's wrath and a time of God's indignation. And we are saved from that wrath. And here the wrath will be completed and we will not go through it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10 and 1 and 2 Thessalonians are eschatology books. They're last day's books. It says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, there we are with the gathering again, the rapture, we should live together with him. So we are not appointed to the wrath. It says in verse 8, then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now the smoke from the glory of God, we would call the Shekinah glory. We'll pass on talking about it today, but we'll talk about it at another time. We've done it in the past. But the smoke of the glory of God stays in the temple and no one can enter in until the plagues were completed. Now that's the end of our eight verses. We'll start next week with the seven plagues. So um, let me give you three things in closing. Number one, the wrath of God will not go on forever, but will be completed. Which is a good thing. It's a good thing that, that we are not under his wrath. And it's a good thing that it will be completed. Number two, to be absent from this body is to be present with the living God. And we see these people who defied the Antichrist in the presence of God on the glass sea. Number three, who shall not fear the Lord? Now, now I state that as a, as a question, like who's not going to fear him? You today may say to me, not me. I'm, I'm not going to fear him. I won't see him and fear him. You will. Everyone will. Because the Bible declares itself. We'll see him in, as he is. And we'll realize the one that created a universe, which is so incredible, is marvelous and wonderful. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we've taken time to talk about this preamble or the introduction to the seven bowls, to see everything lay out the way that it did, to understand that you are full of mercy and justice and truth. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would be in right standing with you. I pray for those that are here tonight that have some unconfessed, unforgiven sin in their lives, something they've got harbored, something they're hanging on to. Maybe they don't know how to get rid of it, but oh Lord, I pray that you would be merciful to them, speak to them, challenge them, encourage them, get them to do what is the right thing now because we want to be in right standing with you. I pray that for everybody in here, that we would all have that desire to be in right standing with you. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to do what you want us to do. And where there are things that we are doing that are not right, we pray you would help us to get them right. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.